when intense military engagements began engulfing the centre of Nicosia in July 1974. Every home and business within the Green Line was abandoned as people were either told to move in advance of hostilities or they were forced to flee as fighting intensified around them. One homeowner, however, remained defiant. More precisely, one lady, Annie Cupris, a 74-year-old widow living by herself on the same road as Ayas Kassianos School and just a few hundred metres from the most easterly bastion of the old Venetian city walls, Flatro Bastion, or in Turkish, Sibylle Bastion. Annie refused to leave her home, even as conflict raged on the street outside, the school itself being site for intense engagements of machine gun fire, still visible on the outside of the building to this day. Post ceasefire, the front of Annie's house formed part of the front edge of the southern ceasefire line. Imagine any street in the world and picture two curbs either side of the road. Each curb represents the furthest edge to which the military force on that side can advance. The same for the other side. And then the no man's land in between represented by the road itself. The front of Annie's house was now part of that southern curb delineating what was now Republic of Cyprus and what was the United Nations controlled buffer zone. The issue now for Annie, her home had no access through the rear into the Republic of Cyprus as it was surrounded by other terraced housing all abandoned at this time. Her only exit from the house was through the front door and into the buffer zone. Remarkably, the local UN commander agreed to allow Annie to remain in her home and that the UN troops stationed in the area would have to escort her out and back into the buffer zone whenever she needed. Sadly, her extended family did not support Annie's actions and they effectively disowned her. The Canadian troops who formed the UN peacekeeping force at that time in that area of Nicosia continued to support Annie over the years, sharing rations with her, celebrating holidays and continuing to give her exclusive escorts to and from the Republic of Cyprus. For 17 years Annie lived this extraordinary existence until 1991 when she died aged 91. Due to legal complications and family disownment, Annie's funeral was eventually organised and paid for by the UN, attended by many dignitaries and Canadian troops who had looked after her over the previous two decades. Less for the ravages of weather, Annie's house has remained untouched since her death. Despite the attempts of her descendant relatives' claims to access the house with the same rights she was afforded by the UN. Reportedly, her son won a legal battle in the Cypriot courts around 1993 as the rightful owner of the property following Annie's passing. He and his family have been accorded the same rights by the United Nations as all other property holders in the buffer zone since. They are denied access. Welcome to Cyprus Untold, the unbiased and unprecedented podcast taking you inside the last 50 years of the United Nations buffer zone. Your host is Samuel Lewis Blanc, 
production by Ceasefire Limited. Hoskelden, Calia Theoris. Welcome back, listeners, to episode three of the Cyprus Untold. Such an iconic story there at Annie's house. If you serve in Unforsip or you have done previously, perhaps you're going to deploy to Cyprus in the future. You will undoubtedly hear this tale as part of your onboarding to the UN mission. You may even be lucky enough to visit the Green Line one day. And this will be one of the first stops on the tour as you pass through the centre of Nicosia. It's a, it's a great reminder of the human nature of conflict, the people's sacrifices, and if we look beyond Annie's defiance and, and her courage, there is also an enduring theme here for Cyprus that has barred the ability for resolution of the entire island. It's property ownership. It is by far the biggest issue for the peacekeeping efforts in Cyprus. As I said, someone owns Annie's house. Someone owns the house next door to Annie. Someone owns the Ayas Casinos school across the road. Someone, somewhere in the world, owns every square foot of the buffer zone. But as the years has passed, some of that ownership trail is lost or has become marred in legal battles. And where it is most contentious is for the properties that are either side of the ceasefire lines, once owned by the opposing sides inhabitants. What I mean by that is uh, let's say there's a Greek Cypriot family who left their home pre-conflict in Kyrenia which is on the uh, Cypriot northern coast and has been lived in since by a Turkish Cypriot family. What happens if the island unites? Does the Greek Cypriot's family get their house back? They have likely made a whole new life in the Republic of Cyprus since generations later. Many people left Cyprus entirely. Um, And this is no hypothetical, by the way. We are talking about hundreds of thousands of cases like this, both sides of the island and within the buffer zone. And every single case has its unique complications too. Families dying out, lost deeds. Some families sold their deeds to other parties, including the Church of Cyprus, um, which reportedly now owns legally speaking, much of the land inside the buffer zone. Three further points I should touch on this subject before we get into today's episode. First point. There is a distinct possibility that the island remains divided forever. And in this scenario, you listening might say, why doesn't the quote-unquote northern side pay reparations to property owners displaced to the south, and vice versa. Well, I remember uh, really distinctly having a conversation with a Greek Cypriot gentleman on the edge of the buffer zone one day about this. Um, It was towards the end of my time in Cyprus, and he described to me, as he was looking north, that he was offered €500,000 at some time in the early 2000s by the Turkish administration for a farm uh, that he had lost um, since 1974. Now he refused to take this money, partly on principle, but mostly he said because 
it wasn't about what the property is worth now. And it wasn't what the property was worth then. It was about what he could have done in the meantime with that farmland. He could have made 500,000 euros, potentially, every year, potentially, um, or amalgamated over that time, plus what the property is worth. So, it, and there are many, many cases like this. So it's unlikely that reparations are going to work as just a one-stop solution. My second point. Much of the buffer zone and the original ceasefire lines drawn in 74 have been eroded by the military forces. Both sides, Turkish and Greeks, Cypriots. And what I mean by that is they have crept over those curbed areas as I described earlier. They have changed what the ceasefire actually looks like on the ground. So they've effectively been land grabbing since 1974. And it's only been incremental, very little amounts at a time, sometimes big jumps. Now we're going to get into great detail on this. Some really uh, niche areas of the buffer zone that we'll talk about in great detail. My point now is that let's say someone did have claim to a property inside the buffer zone in 1974. They can absolutely prove it. However, since then, the UN have failed to prevent the Turkish military, as an example, from moving the edge of the ceasefire line southwards. And now that property in question is inside the quote-unquote TRNC, the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. Possibly, it's even been lived in for decades. How do we reconcile that? The UN did not have the ability to prevent the incursion in the first place. And it doesn't realistically have the power to move the inhabitants out now. This obviously means enforcing the original ceasefire lines, which you're, you're learning quickly. It's failed miserably to do so. And it continues to be unsuccessful in most examples that we're going to discuss on this podcast. Finally, it's my last point. I said that Annie's house is a great representation of the, the wider issue now at play in Cyprus. It's actually a little known fact that at least twice there has been an agreement on the table signed by the Turkish Cypriot administration to unify the island. I am literally talking about a peaceful solution. An agreement to abandon all hostilities, unite the people, governing functions together under a bi-zonal, bi-communal federation, that deal, brokered by the UN, was on the table, signed by the Turkish. However, in both cases, the Greek Cypriot authorities walked away. Why? Because they wanted more property concessions. In both cases, it was down to the issues of reparations, land and property repatriation, and ultimately, the peace talks failed in both cases. I remember the UN political advisor back in 2019 describing to me the scene that he witnessed in 2017 at the peace talks when they came closest to signing a deal. He described people on their knees begging and crying at the Greek Cypriot officials to sign. But sadly, the issues of property and land ownership prevented them from uniting. And so, in my opinion, since then, 
It has only got worse. If anything, the Turkish side feel there is no hope when they've signed twice. And Erdogan of Turkey has certainly taken this as a sign that he must intervene more strongly. Remember, it's very different, the mainland Turkey, to northern Cyprus. And he was once not interested. Now, with his widening agenda on the East Mediterranean, and Cyprus likely being part of that strategy, the idea of unification is even more unlikely. But there is hope. I am still optimistic. And we can discuss some of these issues mentioned today in greater detail, especially the influence of mainland Turkey. And I've got some really interesting stories to tell on the land grabbing I I mentioned earlier. For now, let's remember Annie's house, her great courage, the kindness of the Canadian forces, and what this tale can teach us as we progress throughout the podcast series. So, on to the main event for today's episode. We're going to just be answering questions that have been uh, flooding in since the release of episode one and two. Then we'll pick up the Cyprus story, following on from last week in episode four, uh, when that is recorded in next week's show. I hope you won't be disappointed because I cannot answer everything today, uh, but I have got a compilation in front of me, selected by my lovely wife, some I have seen in advance, and others are going to be a complete surprise. So let's see how we get on. Let's start with Danny from the UK, who asked on Instagram, how much are the cars worth? Well, Danny, um, assuming you're referring to the cars in the underground garage I talked about on episode one, and for those of you who didn't manage to listen to that yet, go back and listen to that story. You will also see images on my Instagram, at Cyprus Untold, where you can see the garage in question for yourself. So the the value, I don't know an exact value. However, in 2018, I do remember there being a few uh, British soldiers who were car lovers. They, they did some research on this and of all the cars in the garage, there were at least two valued over 30,000 euros. That was back in 2018. And I believe they were two of the better models amongst the collection there. I don't know if that value will have gone up significantly since then, question mark. Perhaps there are some car enthusiasts out there who can get in touch and maybe give us an idea. I suspect that they are likely worth much more than back in 74, purely due to the historical nature of their existence since. Uh, It'd definitely be interesting to know. Um, So thanks, Danny, for that question. That's a good start. Next question. Ooh, this is a great one. Alan, again from the UK, contacted me on Facebook asking, you mentioned that the Green Line was created in 1964, but the buffer zone did not extend across the island until 1974. Could you please please explain this? Alan, you are clearly paying great attention to these episodes. Um, Great observations. And you are correct. The green line is often mistaken and um, is used as the terminology for the entire buffer zone. However, 
really it only encompasses the buffer zone area between the old Venetian city walls in Nicosia and it predates the buffer zone as we know it now. So without stealing future episodes airtime uh, what I will say is that the green line in 1964 was it, it was a natural divide um, it occurred due to uh, the violence and intercommunal ethnic battles that were taking place at that time between Turkish and Greek Cypriots. So for those of you not aware, and we haven't actually covered this in the podcast yet, um, but Cyprus does, of course, gain independence from the British in 1960. Four years later, and the country is in turmoil, uh, there's horrific scenes of Cypriots turning on each other everywhere. Uh, every town and village at that time, it was uh, ethnically diverse. There certainly wasn't a majority Turkish Cypriot north or Greek Cypriot south. Quite the contrary, according to my research and my experiences, when it came to the cities of Limassol and Kyrenia in particular, it was very much the opposite. Uh, but anyway, all across the island, streets and district areas did slowly become more divided uh, as the communities fought each other and there's some terrible atrocities on both sides and it did see uh, communities starting to bind together in streets and, and districts and in the old city walls of Nicosia this was really prominent and did look more like a southern Greek Cypriot to northern Greek Cypriot split. That split almost exactly across the centre um, of, the, of the city, east to west. It formed a boundary. Uh, in some areas it was a street apart, and in other areas maybe a couple of streets, or a football field between the areas. And in between, the UN were parachuted in to try and police that violence. Uh, not literally parachuted in, they were actually invited, re- requested really, by the Republic of Cyprus government that had lost control. Now, the UN commander at the time, based in Nicosia, he attempted to draw on a map that Nicosia divide. His name was Major General Peter Young, and uh, he turned to his MA, a military attaché, who was an artilleryman, my old regiment, who handed the general a green chinograph pencil. For those of you not sure what that is, it's basically a thick crayon type pencil. It is virtually waterproof. You can write on concrete with it, on wood. It it has great utility and military folk love them. Uh, As do builders, I'm told by my father-in-law. Why was it green? No reason that I know of, just down to fate as I understand it. So the, the general used that to mark the map that divided, of that divided area in the centre of Nicosia. And so it became known as the Green Line. Now, what I would add to this is just because that original line was drawn in 64, it did not stay that way on the ground uh, physically. Ten years of fighting continued clearly, between 64 and 74, despite the UN's presence, which we will definitely discuss in later episodes. But just for now, 
Um, imagine one day the Greek Cypriots make an advance north, so the line moves a few streets. Then the following week, the Turkish Cypriots raid the southern barricades. It's just a fluctuating line at this time, uh, but it does cause issues to this day because the records are really marred in the UN between 64 to 74. And another really important point, which also continues to haunt the UN uh, due to that China graph pencil, uh, as well as other instruments used for mapping at the time, it, it didn't really give a fine point when drawing on a map. It was much thicker um, than your average pencil. And so it doesn't scale well when you now compare a China graph marking with reality on the ground. So what I'm trying to explain is a China graph mark on a map is so thick that it could be construed as as much as 200 meters, physically speaking, on the ground. Mapping technology back then, certainly in, in a UN force, just did not have the resources to be accurate. So a UN patrol on the green line might only be monitoring a single street on the ground, but the green line on the map makes it look like two or three streets that they were meant to be covering in their patrol. Slight, slight digression there, Alan, and, and to other listeners, sorry, but some interesting facts there that have, have jumped out in my mind there. And uh, it's great how that happens from just talking about the Green Line's history, just that one small part of the buffer zone. So, yeah, um, 10 years prior to the Turkish military even landing on the island and the UN are already there trying to break up the communities and they were effectively like a, a riot police just bouncing around the island dealing with shootings and ethnic violence never never seen before on that scale in cyprus it's really sad there are stories of school friends turning on each other um anyway we we will get to that tough period but thank you alan for highlighting now for listeners who may not have been aware um, or, or maybe distinct click when I mentioned in the trailer, um, 2024, remember, is not just the anniversary of the divide of Cyprus in 74. It is, in fact, that 60-year anniversary also this February um, of when the United Nations forces in Cyprus uh, came into being. Um, it's also known as UNFASIP for short. It's the longest peacekeeping mission in the world. That was a long answer. Stick with me and we will have a few more to cover after the break. Back now for some more listener questions. So I've actually received this from a few people uh, and in all the cases I've replied and had some great conversations online as a result. So um, question is, are you Cypriot? Simple answer. No, I'm not. I don't have any family connection that I'm aware of to either Greek Cypriot, Turkish Cypriot, or mainland Greece or Turkey, just to be clear. In fact, you're not allowed to have any family connection to any of those nationalities to work in 99% of UNFASIP jobs. I think um, it would make the job of a liaison officer in particular uh, a really tricky one to plea impartiality. But of course, the, the premise of the question I think people are getting at, um, a few people wanted to know once we got talking, is 
Uh, am I biased one way or the other? Uh, and the fact of the matter is no. I have great sympathies with both communities. I recognise both sides' grievances. And as a Brit, uh, especially a military veteran, I also recognise the awkward role that Britain has to play in this story. And uh, some might therefore question my ability to view this from a non-Western Eurocentric viewpoint. You would be completely right to do this. But hopefully my understanding of my potential unconscious bias helps some way to alleviating any fears that you might have about my neutrality. This actually leads nicely on to another question I was asked um, in, in another way as well. Um, so it's worth highlighting. Andreas, a Greek Cypriot heritage, but living in Australia, he asked me on Instagram, do you side with Turkish or Greek? Uh, Andreas and I actually had a wonderful back and forth messaging on this and uh, with it linking like nicely with the previous question also, I'd like to answer, uh, give you, sorry, the answer of a few points I made to Andreas. So I said, I am not Cypriot, but I do feel Cyprus is a second home. My family until recently had spent more of their lives in Nicosia than they had in the UK. I believe Cyprus should be a united island, that people should be referred to as Cypriots without the Turkish or Greek prefix. My personal experiences meeting so many people on both sides was that there was a lot more in common between Cypriots and less in differences than probably understood. The crux of the issue now in quote-unquote northern Cyprus is not Turkish Cypriots, but it's mainland Turks, quote-unquote. And of course, the Turkish government's interference in Cyprus. By Turkish government, I mean mainland Turkey and Erdogan. I added, we also cannot ignore that the north is technically a military occupation. Therefore, a violation of international law, which is very difficult to unravel. I have a lot more to say on this point, but perhaps let's drip feed that over time so we don't get too pogged down in the heavy politics right now from the beginning. Um, we, we haven't even learned how we got past the 1950s yet in the main episodes. Um, so, yeah, fantastic uh, chat with Andreas there and, and a few other individuals and hopefully I've answered your questions there. So next, do I have any reading recommendations? So that was from Marcel or Marcelli, uh, apologies if I'm saying that wrong, all the way from Argentina. Well, um, I wonder if Marcel, uh, are you deploying soon to Unfacet? Um, it doesn't say here. Uh, it'd be great to know because the, the reason I say that for everyone else listening Argentina is one of the largest contributors of military personnel to the UN in Cyprus they monitor what is known as sector one which is on the the western side of Cyprus so sort of the um the far edge of Umfasip uh, UMPA airport and then all the way up to the Coquina pocket uh, and they also provide security for UMPA itself so the old Nicosia airport uh, it's a fantastic question, uh, really useful for 
anyone who wants to do further research on the Cyprus problem and for holidaymakers and the thousands of British forces families that rotate through the sovereign base areas, you too should be reading up on your Cypriot history. Too many of you that I encountered uh, knew almost nothing of the buffer zone or why the British have a complicated history in Cyprus. It baffled me. Um, I digress. Sorry. Books. So, uh, we cannot uh, go without mentioning Bitter Lemons, of course, by Lawrence Durrell. It's more for ease of read, uh, or perhaps listen to it on Audible. Uh, Its fame is probably the reason I have to mention it. Uh, But substance is possibly lacking if you're a real academic. Personal favourite of mine next, uh, The End of Empire, The Cyprus Emergency by Martin Bell, another artillery alumni. Uh, Some will recall him as the famous war correspondent who would always wear a white jacket. Uh, Completely off topic, but I actually escorted Martin into the buffer zone in 2019. Uh, He was taking a tourist group on a tour of Cyprus. Always kicking myself that I didn't get a photo with him at the time. But I do remember our conversation inside the Wargraves Commission Cemetery. Brilliant. So definitely read that one. Uh, next recommendation. Difficult one to get hold of this one uh, in terms of the physical book. It's very expensive, but it is available on Kindle. Uh, I will make sure to put some links on Instagram to some of these for those of you interested. It's called A Business of Some Heat by Brigadier Francis Hen. It's really the only authoritative text from the UN standpoint of what occurred before and during 1974. Uh, There is very little beyond this book that goes into such detail. Uh, But I suppose that's where we come in now. Filling in that void, um, Cyprus Untold, is is bringing you up to date, bringing you up to the modern day buffer zone, post-Brigadier Hen. Another two outstanding books I highly recommend. First one being The Past in Pieces by Rebecca Bryant. And the second being uh, The Cyprus Conspiracy by Brendan O'Malley and Ian Craig. The second particularly important for understanding the wider geopolitics of the Middle East and North Africa and, and how important Cyprus is to the American and British militaries, as well as their spy agencies. Um, So two great recommendations there as well. Finally, I would say if if you're not much of a reader, uh, there is loads on YouTube to get into. Of note, I would suggest uh, Johnny Harris's Uncharted series on Cyprus. Fantastic visuals, and he, he actually does a really great job of showing all parts of the island. I think it's about four episodes. They're not too long, so um, easy to consume. It was only filmed in 21, 22, um, so certainly up to date. I would just say it it lacks the depth that we are going into here. But for visualising the buffer zone, fantastic series to watch. Thanks very much, Marcel, for that question. And good luck with your tour if, if you are going going out anytime soon. So that's the end of our first Q&A episode. Um, Thank you very much to everyone who has engaged with me positively on this. I also appreciate the support we have received. Um, 
I'm very sorry that I can't answer all the questions sent in. I will try to get round to them either next time on the podcast or I'll certainly endeavour to reply to you all individually. Thanks for listening. Do please continue to like, listen, share and subscribe. All the best. Thank you for listening to Cyprus Untold. If you would like any questions answered on the podcast or you'd like to submit your supporting stories, photographs and memories of Cyprus throughout the ages, please message me direct on Instagram or YouTube at Cyprus Untold. Alternatively, send via email to info at ceasefire.world. Remember to like, subscribe and share wherever you get your podcast. For now, Oshikel and Dio. Goodbye.